0: You may be seated. Well, normally when I say that, I begin to preach. Uh, but today, we uh, actually welcome to our pulpit uh, church member and also pastor, uh, the Reverend Shane Martin. Uh, Shane was born and raised in South Carolina. If you've not met him yet, you will hear that in his wonderful accent, which I do not make fun of because mine's from Georgia. He is married to Kara. They've got uh, two calm boys? Is that how you'd describe them? Not, yeah, you'd like to meet those two calm boys. Uh, Very fun, vibrant Luke and Owen. Uh, He is an ordained pastor, having served one church uh, for 14 years uh, here in southeastern Virginia. Uh, Currently serves as a firefighter and paramedic for the city of Hampton. When I told my son that a firefighter was preaching today, he thought it was much cooler than what I do. So... uh, Without further ado, we do welcome you, Shane. Thank you.
1: Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Camper, you have no southern accent whatsoever. <laughs> God just doesn't give these things out that, you know. Just, no, it's, it's good to be with you today in, in, this, in this place. Uh, Karen and I have been here since last. Easter was our first Sunday Easter a year ago we joined in October and uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you we have been so warmly received since we've been here and those of you that are in town visiting uh, you may be on vacation and you are visiting with family that live in the area and maybe you just came to church and you're looking for a good place to recommend them to this church is a wonderful, vibrant, growing place, and we just thank God for it, for our family. Uh, we haven't gotten any calls from anybody about anything Luke or Owen have done, so that's a huge plus. I, I appreciate y'all just looking the other way. I really do. That's how I deal with it, and I appreciate you joining me in that. But. I don't do this very often anymore, preaching that is, and I am very grateful for the opportunity. And if it's really bad, you can say when you leave, well, he's just a fireman, we didn't expect much. (laughs) So I'll I'll take that. But I am grateful to be here, and I want to speak on the topic of prayer, learning to pray from the Psalms. And when I stand before an assembly like this to, to speak about prayer, this is my working assumption that not one of us in this room is satisfied with our prayer lives. That if, if we were to really evaluate all the spiritual disciplines that we've developed over the years and habits as Christians, if there, were, if there was one we could focus in on and improve, I think a lot of us would say, I would like to pray more or pray better or feel that my prayer life is like what I see in the Bible, I believe probably every Christian in the room would say that. Now, why is that? Well, there's a very simple answer. We just really don't know what we're doing. But there's a theological reason for that. And so you're not in a category by yourself not knowing what you're doing. That comes with being a human being, even a human being that's made new by Christ. Romans 8, 26 says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, helps us in our weakness. Now, what is this weakness we have? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit of God helps us in a universal weakness. We do not know what to pray for. We don't know if we're asking for the right stuff. We don't know if we're coming to God exactly as we ought to. Or is it pleasing to him? Is he going to show blessing upon this prayer or favor? Or is this something that we shouldn't be praying for at all? Have you ever had that experience? That is a universal weakness that is given to Christians. In Romans, he's talking about Believers. And this presents us with a significant problem living in this world because the Bible calls this age in which we live the evil day. Now, I am extremely optimistic for what God is doing in the world, and I'm extremely optimistic for what he's going to do in the future of the world, but nevertheless, I have to be honest and say, the Bible calls the day in which we live an evil day. There is sin and there is pain and there is suffering And at certain periods of your time, sorrow and disappointment and pain come in waves. And just when you get up from the last one, you get hit by the next one. And when your only firm footing is in your prayer closet before God, and when you go to that prayer closet to talk to your Heavenly Father, you realize you don't know what to say, that's a significant problem. So our ignorance and the sins within our own heart and the sins of the world make this issue of prayer critical. And because of that, God has not left us without help. The Bible says that he has given us his spirit who intercedes for us. Taking our groanings, our inaudible expressions, our feeble prayers, our best attempts, and he translates those according to the will of God so that God hears and answer right in line with what he had decreed all along. And not only has he given us his spirit, but he's given us his word. Jesus said in John fifteen seven, If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask what you wish, and it will be done for you. So we are ignorant and we live in a sinful world and we live in great times of need because of pain and suffering. And if that were the whole story, there wouldn't be much reason to gather here this morning and hear a sermon on prayer. But God has come and given us his Holy Spirit who indwells us, who takes our worst prayers, our very worst prayers, and turns them into something that participates in what God is doing in his universe. And he gives us his word. And the more that our prayers conform to the word, the more the spirit is able to take them and use them for the glory of God. And so that's why I think it is wise to learn to pray by looking at the scriptures. I think when you read the New Testament and you watch Jesus pray and his prayers are recorded, I think you can make a good argument that he prays from the Psalms more than any other book. If you want to do a great Bible study project, read through the New Testament. And when you get to a quotation from the Old Testament, which your Bible will cite as a quotation, it'll either be in italics or parentheses or something which sets it apart write down the old testament book which that quotation came from and then go and look that quotation up and write down in the new testament where it's repeated and you'll have a commentary on the old testament book by reading the new testament and you'll see how the two fit together and when you read the prayers of jesus if you did that little exercise only for his prayers, what you would find is that when he prays and the apostles record it, it's most often from the book of Psalms. Now, why is that? Because the book of Psalms express the breadth and depth of human need. When you come to a psalm like chapter 35 of the book of Psalms, which we're going to look at today, You see need, and you see intense calling out to God. And so it makes sense that in Jesus' times of need, he prayed like this. Let me read Psalm 35. Let me say that as I read this, this psalm falls into that category of psalms that you heard last week called imprecatory psalms. What that means is somebody has done something and a Christian's praying about it, and they're upset. And they are calling out to God to make that something that has been done, to make it right, to bring justice. And in this case, the one calling out is David. And the one that is being prayed about is King Saul, And the group that he has gathered together to attack David with the end goal of killing him. David was an unknown shepherd boy. Saul was the king. Saul began to, in his pride, rebel against God. And so God raised up this unknown shepherd boy and made him king. And to make a long story short, what you're going to see in Psalm 35 is the drama that results from envy. If you want to do another good Bible study, start in Genesis, go all the way to the book of Revelation, and look at what the sin of envy does in the world. Saul sees the anointing of God upon David. He sees that he has lost the blessing and anointing of God. And in his bitterness, he cannot rejoice for David. He can't be happy for David. In fact, the Bible says he begins to fear David. He begins to believe David is out to get him. And he begins to tell others that David is conspiring against the kingship in Israel. And they are to kill David. And so David is in a cave somewhere, hunted like an animal, having done nothing but serve Saul faithfully. And so he prays this as Saul is trying to hunt him down. He says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind and the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me, and without cause they dug a pit for my life, and let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net he hid ensnare him, and let him fall into it to his destruction, and then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. And all my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask of me things I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with my head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I was grieved for a friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me, wretches whom I did not know, tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from these lions. And I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink with their eye and hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace. But against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouth against me, and they say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake, rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those delight in my righteousness, shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant." And then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. David is the victim of this drama of envy. It's nothing new. He, he knew the stories of the old covenant before him. He knew that Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, when he saw his brother's sacrifice accepted by God and his rejected he knew what Cain did out of envy that God's blessing was on one but not the other he knew there would be more after him when you read the new testament you see that the religious leaders of the the era in which Stephen and the apostles live they they stoned the first deacon because he was filled with the holy spirit of God He had the blessing of God, and they knew they didn't have it. So they decided to kill him. And at the pinnacle of this drama, you see our Lord Jesus himself. Mark tells us that Pilate, when Jesus was brought before him, knew Jesus was there because of no other reason than they envied him. That the blessing of God of heaven was on his life. That drama plays out all the way through the Bible, and David here in Psalm 35 is the victim of it. And so he goes before the Lord, and he records a prayer in Psalm 35, and really it's it's three prayers, but they're all the same. They start and end the same way. Verses 1 through 10, and then 11 through 18, and 19 through the end of the chapter Three different prayers, but he's praying about the same stuff. He just says it three different ways. He petitions the father three different times for relief from the injustice he's experiencing. And here's the structure of his prayers. First of all, he he makes a complaint. He says, Lord, I'm being sought unjustly. I haven't done what I'm accused of. And he lays out his complaint before the father. Then he petitions God for help. In the complaint and in the petitions, in both, he will lay out arguments. Not arguing with God, he's not angry at God, but he's arguing to God, asking God to see what's going on and intervene. So when David prays, and I read this, the the picture I get in my mind is a man coming before a judge who's a righteous judge, and this man has gone through some kind of difficulty, and it's not his fault. In fact, he's gone through some kind of threat, currently is going through it, but he didn't do anything. And he's going before the judge, and he's petitioning the judge for protection and for help. And in order to do that, you can't just walk in a courtroom and say, "Uh, Your Honor, I want restraint from this individual. Can you grant me that? Or, Your Honor, I think you ought to lock this guy up. You have to make a case. You have to lay out an argument. And that's exactly what David does here, both in his complaint and his petitions. And then he ends each prayer with, Thanksgiving. All of that in this one passage recording this particular incident with Saul. And so when you read it, you need to take notice of a few things. First of all, David is not afraid to complain to God. In fact, I think I do way too much complaining that is not to God. Some of you may have that same issue. That's called grumbling and God hates it. But God never minds when his children come before him and say, Lord, let me tell you what's going on. And that's counterintuitive because we are good confessional Christians. And as good confessional Christians, we believe God already knows what's going on. In fact, we believe more than knowing it, he had something to do with it. And you would think he wouldn't want to hear about it. Especially my point of view. Because my point of view is always about me. Lord, here's what you're doing. And you may not know this, but that inconvenienced me. This person aggravates me. This kept me up last night. Lord, do you know what's going on? And if you think that sounds odd, go back and read Psalm 35. David says, Lord, how long are you just going to stand up there and watch this? When are you going to rouse yourself? It almost... He loves God, and he has a heart after God. But if you were to read that differently, when are you going to get up and do something about this? And God doesn't mind that at all. Because you are coming before him in reverence, and you're appealing to him from his promises and his nature. God, you have said this about yourself. You have done this. Now I'm asking you to do it again. And God never minds that. In fact, if you don't learn to pray like that, you'll never really pray. Ever. Even about the smallest stuff in your life. Somebody asked C.S. Lewis one time. They said, what in your life is too small to pray about? You know, what's too insignificant? Should you pray about things that are trifling and trivial? And C.S. Lewis, in his book, Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer, I highly recommend it. He says, I have to pray about the small stuff. Because number one God ordained the small stuff as well as the big stuff and number two and I found this to be true if I don't pray about the small stuff when I get to the big stuff I won't know how to pray about it either learn to come before God and just open your heart even when it's filled with complaints about what's going on so Having only read this once, it's a lengthy passage. Let me tell you a few things I learned from this passage. Number one, David knows that God is sovereign over everything that he's going through. That's the first thing. If you're new to church or you're new to the Christian faith and you hear this word sovereign and it doesn't resonate, let me put it like this. It means God caused it. Not that he just saw it. Not that he just allowed it. But that he actually brought it about for his purposes. See the biggest problem we're going to have. In learning to pray like David. Is we have to learn to think like David. We have to learn to reason like David. And when David saw what he was going through. He knew who the source of it was. And he knew because of that, he could appeal to him to stop it. Listen to how he prays. He says in verse 17 that he knows that God is sovereign over his own life, David's own life. He says, How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me. From destruction, my precious life from the lions. In other words, God, you're in charge of taking care of me. And you can do that because you're sovereign. If God can't do it, why would we even bother praying to him? If he can't stop it. But David's view of the sovereignty of God doesn't stop there. He says in verse 8 that God is sovereign over his enemies' lives. Those who were not believers. He says, let destruction come upon him, and by him I believe he's talking about Saul. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he laid ensnare him, let him fall into it to his destruction. So in David's mind, God has orchestrated events which he can intervene at any moment and save David and restrain the evil one involved in causing the conflict. In fact, he basically says in verses 22 through 25 that God can intervene and put a stop to the whole matter. He says, You have seen, O Lord, and be not silent, O Lord. Be not far from me. Awake. Rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. I want to encourage you to to begin to, to deal with these issues if they trouble you. And to learn to think according to biblical categories of thought. Well, what do you mean by biblical categories of thought? I mean that when you read the Bible, it transforms your thinking so much so that you come away seeing the world through completely new eyes. You learn to think differently as this book renews your mind. And then you'll learn to pray according to the truth therein. For instance... I believe the Bible teaches that God can ordain an event, not that he can do it, that he does do it, that God ordains every event that transpires in the world and that some of those events he ordains when they actually come to pass, they grieve him and anger him. God is sovereign over everything. He ordains what comes to pass. Therefore, we can pray to Him to intervene and accomplish His purposes. You say, I'm not sure that's a really reasonable category of thought. I'm not sure that I can think like that. Well, consider the greatest sin ever committed, which is. Obviously, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Was it a sin? It absolutely was. They crucified the Lord of glory, the creator of the world. Was God pleased with that event? Well, what's the answer? It's yes and no. No. He wasn't pleased that wicked men nailed his son to a cross. But he was pleased with the outcome because he turned the sin for the good of the world. I think you have to learn to think like that. Jonathan Edwards said that when we look at sin heinous evil sin we're so tempted to want to distance God from it but he said the problem is we look at an individual sin like putting it under a microscope and we look at how heinous that sin was and how evil that sin was and and that's all we can see and we're very troubled by God's relationship to this sin he's creator of the world and yet this has happened and he's good, and this is evil. How do we reconcile these two? And we come up with all kinds of unbiblical ways of trying to reconcile God's relationship to the sins and the horrible things that happen in our lives. But Edwards said, if we didn't have that microscopic view, but rather if we could step back, like looking through a telescope, and we could see how God turns the worst sins of our lives for Good. Then we could say, God rules over all of this. I mean, isn't it true in your own life that some of the things in the moment that you thought were the worst things that happened actually turned out to be things that were the best? Why is that? Because God's at work for your good. And he ordains all the events of your life. And so when you look at an individual event, It's easy to lose perspective. But when you step back and you look through that biblical category that God has ordained this, and no, he wasn't pleased by the sin in it. Of course he wasn't. But he is so good and so powerful and so sovereign that he took those terrible events and he turned them for my good and his glory. Don't you think in heaven that'll be a great reason to give him praise? to see for all of eternity more and more clearly how God turned the worst things and made them the best things. David sees the sovereignty of God. You got to learn to think that way if you're going to pray this way. The second thing David sees is that God delights in our petitions and our arguments. He, He loves it when When one of his children comes before him and says, you're a holy God, and what's happening is so sinful and unholy, will you rouse yourself and deal with this? He loves that. He loves to see us vested and all in to our prayers. I mean, David's mind is not wandering during this prayer. You know that, right? He's all in. And he loves it when David calls on him to remember his nature, to remember his promises, and to fulfill them. David is saying, Lord, you said you're my salvation, and now I need saving. Are you going to do it? Lord, you said you're my provider, and now I need provision. Are you going to do it? Lord, you say you're holy and what's happening is unjust, it's unholy, are you going to make this right? God's not put off or offended by that. He's never bothered when we remind him of something he said he would do and then ask him to do it. In other words, he's not like us. Your kids ever irritate you by reminding you of something you said you'd do? But let's be honest, those are powerful words when they come from like, a seven-year-old. About time they're teenagers, you don't care anymore. But when they're seven or eight, <laughs> and they're still cute, you say, they say to you, Dad, you said you'd take me to the store to buy a new baseball glove. And you're thinking, yeah, I had 20 bucks in my pocket when I said that. But I don't have it now. Now what are we going to do? Really? You ever been in a real good mood and promise your kids something and they they hit you up right after work one day when you're tired and exhausted? Dad, you said. You know that feeling. It's, It's universal among parents. Our moods change. Our resources fluctuate. The best of intentions die two feet in front of us. Thank God he's not like that. His resources never fluctuate. He's never in a bad mood. He never, when he hears us say, respectfully, Dad, he never rolls his eyes. I heard some of y'all do that. Y'all need to stop that. But you get it, don't you? We change And so when our kids come to us, we may or may not be able to make good on our promises, but God is never like that, ever. So David comes, and he makes his arguments, and he makes his petitions, and he reminds God. And if you read the Psalms, you'll see this all the way through. God never minds being reminded. I mean, in fact, God destroyed the earth with a flood, then made a promise never to do it again, and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang a reminder in the sky just to make good on it. He never minds. Never minds hearing what he said previously. In fact, when you cry out to him in agony, in pain, in loss, you're doing what the Lord Jesus did. The Bible says in Hebrews 5, 7, In the days of Jesus' flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries. and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence Jesus petitioned God in Gethsemane three times just as David petitions here three times Lord if there's any way let this cup pass from me if there's any way Father let this cup pass from me if there's any way And God said, no, son, there's no other way. And because he was reverent, he revered his father, he accepted it. And so must we at times, but make sure you're crying out with petitions and then bolster those petitions with reasons and arguments based on the nature and the promise of God. And the last thing I see here is that No matter the degree of suffering or evil that has transpired, that has led us to the particular prayer time we're in, offer your petitions with thanksgiving. David ends every prayer here, all three of them, with thanksgiving. Every one. That's how those divisions are so easily known. He He makes a complaint. He he makes, and then a petition. He bolsters it with arguments. Lord, you've said, Lord, you are holy. This is unholy, and so on. And then he says, Lord, I thank you. I thank you. How can he do that? He's in a cave somewhere hiding. He can do it because he has these categories of thought that God's over all of this and that if he's caused it, that ultimately is for David's good. He doesn't know how it's going to turn out, but he knows it's for his good. And listen, church, that's how we have to learn to pray. Learning to pray is not sounding like a theologian. Learning to pray is going before God and saying, Lord, this happened. I don't like it. I feel like it was unjust. Father, it's heartbreaking. It seems to be so inconsistent with what I I believed you would do in my life. And and Lord, I I feel empty and worn out, and I don't know what to do. And I need your help. And Father, you have said to me that you will be my help. You said you're a refuge to which I can run, and I feel like I'm just out there by myself in this instance. And, Father, I don't know how I'm going to make good on this. I don't know how I'm going to provide. I don't know how I'm going to offer help to my family because I need help. And you can go to God like that and pour all of that out. And when you're done, you say, I know you reign over all of this, and I give you thanks. I bless your name. I'm not looking at this through a microscope. I'm looking at it through a telescope. I know you're going to turn it for good because you always have. And I trust you. And Father, I'm all in. I'm with you. I am with you in this. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. Nowhere else for me to go. So let's just go get it done. I mean, sometimes that's just how it It has to come like that. And the Bible says when you pray like that, offering your petitions with thanksgiving, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, you all know these verses, that the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. But just make sure of this one great reality, that when you come before God, your argument for why he should hear you and bless you is not your argument obedience or your righteousness but it's Christ the way the door is even open to you is by looking away from yourself and saying I trust in the life death and resurrection of Jesus in my place that's what this table before us preaches to us John Calvin called this the visible word It preaches the gospel of Jesus living a perfect life, going to the cross, having his body broken so that we could be made whole and being raised whole to validate everything God had been doing in in him. This table preaches the gospel to us. If you're going to pray at all, if you're going to pray like this, You must come through Christ. He hears you on the basis of what Christ has done. You're an adopted child. He loves to hear your voice. For some of you, it may have been a while since you've come to him and said anything to him. He can handle that. But today would be a good day. There should be an urgency about it for you to Say to him, Lord, I'm in this with you. I don't understand what you're doing right now. But I trust you that there's a bigger picture at work here. And that one day all of these things will be set right. He will hear you. He'll answer you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that if we want to hear it, we hear it and we understand it. And I pray today for every person in this room that you will give them ears to hear. Father, if there's any error or any misstatement in anything I said, Lord, you know it wasn't intentional and I pray that you will forgive it and just erase it from the memories Lord and they would take the truth of the gospel that we have access to you as your children to speak our minds sinful as they are and you will hear us and you will work your plans somehow incorporating our prayers so father be pleased to come and raise up a praying people here at Grace Covenant. Begin in my own heart, Lord. And I ask you, Father, that you would come and now minister to us through the bread and through the wine. And as we receive it, we would rejoice in all that Christ has done for us and that you are doing in our lives today even taking the worst and turning it to the best. We commit ourselves to you again today in Christ's name.